And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by Bryson. And Bryson writes, Hey, John, I just saw that on James Gunn's Instagram on a post how he got the new Xbox sent to him early, that lucky son of a bitch, uh, by Microsoft, which looks pretty cool, that he said he is in Canada now for a two-week quarantine before production starts on Peacemaker. They just announced this show a few months ago, and they are already going to be filming soon. I didn't realize that they were this far into the process already. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in. And yes, James Gunn, uh, who who I like a great deal, uh, he did put up a post talking about how he got the new Xbox sent to him. So he's got that, which is keeping him company as he's now in a two-week quarantine in Canada. Now, for those of you who do not know, if you want to travel to Canada right now from the United States, well, you've got you better plan accordingly. Because they're not just going to let you in to come around, come in and do anything willy-nilly. You've got to come in and then instantly go into quarantine for two weeks. (laughs) Two weeks. This is actually why, unfortunately, I was unable to attend my grandfather's funeral, who just uh, passed away shortly ago. Because I was just never going to be able to get there in time for it and be able to get outside of the quarantine window. So James Gunn is in there now. And it wasn't even months ago that they announced the Peacemaker show. Of course, Peacemaker is the John Cena character in the upcoming Suicide Squad film. And it was just a couple of weeks ago, Rob, that they announced that they were going to be doing on HBO a Peacemaker standalone series. And yes, James Gunn is already down there now. This isn't going to be shooting in six months or in a year. He is in Canada now doing the quarantine thing to be ready to start shooting Peacemaker pretty much immediately. Now, for a number of people, this does catch folks off guard. It's like, isn't this quick? But first, let's take a look at specifically what James Gunn did have to say about this. James Gunn said the following. Lovely gift from my friends at Xbox. Of course, it's uh, the busiest time of my life between two movies and a TV show. But perhaps I'll find some downtime as I begin my mandatory two-week quarantine here in Canada for Peacemaker. So, yeah, this has caught some people by surprise. Say, wait a minute, already? Aren't they rushing this? Rob, this once again highlights to us the fact that by the time we hear about this type of news, yeah, <clears throat> it's already been there for a long time. We, we talk about the Ben Affleck thing. When he was first announced as Batman, he was actually agreed to play Batman several, several months before that ever happened. Usually when we hear things, unless we hear specifically that this just happened, usually when we get this news, it's something that's been in the works for a long time. We just saw Deadline talk about that they're going to do a Boba Fett series and they may start shooting next week. Well, guess what? They're not rushing that. That's probably been in the works for a year. It's just that we hear about now and it's a good reminder of this. But Rob... Now that it seems imminent, they're getting ready to shoot this damn thing. What do you think? Were you caught off guard by this news that they're going to shoot it right away? And where's your expectation level right now for Peacemaker? Well, first of all, look, when I first heard the news, like probably everybody else, I was like, wait, what? (laughs) You know, the Peacemaker (laughs) character goes back a long way in in DC history. I think I bought a Peacemaker miniseries in the 80s. Um, In fact, I know I did because I just found it. The thing is, I'll bet you that when they were shooting this movie and Warner Brothers first saw dailies coming in. You know, we've we've talked a lot about John Cena looking for the perfect vehicle for him to play. I'll bet you this is it went down something like this. 
they started seeing dailies. James Gunn was, they, they looked at his performance. They saw John Cena play this specific character. And for whatever reason, Cena finally hit it. The magic was there. And, and James Gunn realized it. The Warner Brothers execs were watching dailies. And this was, by the way, they've been making this movie for the better part of two years. So this probably happened, I'll bet, over a year ago. HBO Max is looking for stuff. They're looking for what can we do? How can we tie things into movies? Suicide Squad hasn't even come out yet. So this probably was something James Gunn suggested. He was able to, of anybody, probably write this script faster than anyone else. And he had a great working relationship with John Cena. HBO Max is like, yep. The same way they made that decision, we, we heard about the decision being made for the uh, Zack Snyder cut of Justice League back in November of last year. It's been a year since they were talking about doing it and started discussions. We didn't know until, what, March or April or something. And um, I think that this has been in development for quite some time. They fast-tracked it. They love the scripts that James Gunn wrote. They, he probably wrote a two-hour pilot or something. And they said, let's make it. I mean, look, people forget we've pretty much been in lockdown since March. And while they've been working on on editorial on on Suicide Squad, uh, probably via Zoom or something. I don't know. I mean, that's how people are editing. And people have people have work to do. Creative people don't sit on the rest on their laurels. You know, they're doing 10 different things. You made a movie during this time. Remember, I mean, that's how it goes down. And I think I love seeing this because it makes me excited for these shows because then people are all on board. I think that yeah. what we're going to get is something special, something really neat. Yep. And I'm looking forward to a question is for you guys. Were you taken aback by this news that they're actually getting ready to shoot pacemaker peacemaker now? What do you guys <laughs> think about it? Are I you looking pacemaker. for pacemaker? <laughs> pacemaker, <laughs> that's, the new that's, that's the new Clint Eastwood superhero movie pacemaker. What do you heart. guys think about this? Jump down in the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by David H. And David H. writes, Hey, John. According to Deadline, the CEO of Cinemark, Mark Zordai, has announced that they speak. That, that just sounds like a comic book villain name, Zordai. Anyway, has announced that they will now assess the theatrical window on a movie by movie basis. He even stated that they are always open to showing streaming movies in their theaters. What do you think of these changes? They good or just stupid? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And listen. The issue of and the topic of the theatrical window has been, especially lately, a very, very hot, hot topic. Now, for those of you who don't understand or know what the theatrical window is, the theatrical window is basically this agreement between studios, distributors, and the movie theaters. And basically, the way the theatrical window is this. The theatrical window is a period of time between when a movie comes out in theaters to when it's allowed to come out on various forms of home video, be it streaming, physical media, whatever. That window of time is what's known as the theatrical window. And the movie theaters want that theatrical window. It's, it's, at about, it's about three months, Rob, right now. It's roughly about three months is that window from when it first comes out on in theaters to when they can put it on video. Some studios, not all, you know, famously Disney doesn't want that theatrical window to go anywhere, but some studios like Universal and a few others would like to shrink that window 
and have a shorter period of time between when a movie comes out in theaters versus when it comes out on home video. Of course, this would be incredibly damaging to the movie industry because if, you know, a movie's coming out at home in two and a half weeks, why bother going out to the theaters? Some people would think and going there. So the theaters have always fought to keep that. Now, a short time ago, AMC theaters signed a deal with Universal Studios that allows Universal with certain films to release them in AMC and then release them on home video later. Of course, this doesn't mean that Regal went along with it or a number of other of the movie theater chains, but AMC did it. Now, Cinemark is saying that they are open, given the current circumstances, they are open on a movie-by-movie basis to consider that approach, to consider allowing a movie in their theaters and for it to come out on home video on a much shortened release window with a few caveats, with a few caveats. Let's take a look at this. This is from Slash who writes, The Croods 2 is the biggest movie that Cinemark will be playing this month that won't be exclusive to theaters for very long. Universal is sending into theaters starting on November 25th, but it's expected to arrive on VOD before Christmas. That's a very, very short theatrical window. Yeah. Freaky will be uh, adopting a similar strategy. I am looking forward to Freaky, I have to admit. We'll be adopting a similar strategy with a theatrical release on November 13th, followed by a VOD release on December 4th. That's less than three weeks. These details were revealed by IndieWire back at the beginning of October, but at the time it was merely a general offer to theaters from Universal, and now Cinemark feels that they need to accept it with a few other options to bring in revenue. Okay, Rob, you know that I have said, and I believe firmly along with the movie theaters, the notion of getting rid of the theatrical window is essentially getting rid of the movie theater industry. The movie theaters need that theatrical window and studios need the theaters. And therefore, I think like I I just think, Rob, you know, you and I talked about this. The move by AMC theaters was completely idiotic. The leadership over at AMC these days, I don't know what they're smoking, but it was a completely idiotic move. But. But. Does that mean this Cinemark move is idiotic? Actually, no. And here's my rationale on this. When you read through the story, it's pretty clear that Cinemark is saying, hey, you know what? During this period of time that we are in right now, we can loosen our position on this theatrical window thing and look at films on a film-by-film basis. We have to take our circumstances into consideration. Is it a bad idea right now in the midst of a global pandemic for at least temporarily and on a film-by-film basis of the theaters choosing to compromise with the with the studios and just to get some things on screen, even if it's not ideal. Rob, when you're in a bad situation, sometimes options that are not necessarily ideal are the, in fact, best options available on the table. And, and you know, we've talked a lot during this pandemic that There's a lot of things that you can do right now that under normal circumstances, you'd never do in a million years, but circumstances dictate necessity. And I'll be honest with you, Rob, as much as I am against the collapse of the theatrical window, because I think that'll ruin movie going, that's just me. 
to do that right now in this particular environment, ideal? No, but it might be the best option. It, it, it gets it gets movies into theaters where the studios aren't going to do much business right now. And then it allows studios or uh, studios to get their theaters, their movies, I should say, out into the VOD market in a shortened period of time. It's not ideal for either side, but it's better than what is available without it. So I got to say, I think actually Cinemark is looking at this pretty much with a level head. I actually think this might be a pretty good approach temporarily for the time being. We'll see where we're at six months from now. But as of right now, uh, Rob, I got to say, unless I'm missing something, I don't think this is a bad idea either for the theater side or the studio side. What do you think about this? Well, I, I look, I have to say that I have to agree with you here because we're in a different, you know, a different world. And the question is, how do how do how do studios and 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 uh, companies that are production companies that are making product? How do they continue to make product and still be profitable? Because the whole point is what people forget is that movies are a product like anything else. They're widgets, you know, they're cars, they're anything that's being manufactured to be sold to the consumer market is in fact a product. And what's happened is the, the method of distribution for this product has been completely disrupted. And yet everybody, these businesses have been set up to work they make product. That's their product. They've got a the products is mo movies and television or whatever, and they have to be able to sell it. And right now, the distribution method, which is theatrical, the primary distribution method has has been completely shut down. So we have to look at the secondary, the ancillary markets, which is physical media, which is dying, and then of course streaming, which is exploding. So what do you do? You've got SPOV or SVOD or PVOD, whatever you want to call it, pay per view is the next alternative. If you can't go to the movie theater, you'll pay for new new uh, content directly. And you're selling directly to, to the consumer. Now, the real question is, the consumer's not used to paying a premium for their streaming material because they get everything for free based on their, not free, but they're paying for, for you know, a month a, a monthly fee. So how do, you, how do you get consumers to fork out 20 bucks or 30 bucks or whatever to get a brand new movie? This is a mindset that is new. And eventually, I think it's going to catch on and people are going to realize, oh, well, the next Avengers movie is going to be available for six months, you know, on pay-per-view. That's the only way we're going to be able to get it. And so once people learn this, I think they'll adapt to a new paradigm. And that's what this is all about. It's like, you know what? We're going to look at, like, if we make a movie that costs 30 million, and, hell, any movie under $100 million dollars. There's a way to make that viable with a pay-per-view window. It just and it's going to keep getting more viable the more people get used to it, and they're going to start doing that on a movie by movie basis. I think taking it and doing it with animated films first is a good idea because, hey, you got kids. You 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 spend thirty bucks, you get to play a movie as long as you want for a certain amount of time. The kids will watch it over and over again, and you realize that was money well spent. So we're in we're in a we're in an evolutionary period right now, a real sea change. I got to tell you I disagree with you on that. I mean, on the one hand, I agree with your first point that you know, the the changing of the especially right now at this particular moment, the distribution model, this thing that Cinemark is doing allows as a best a best of both worlds, right? 
People who want to get out, go to the movies, whatever, you're going to get that with a theatrical. Then shortened theatrical window, people can then get it at home. But I disagree with you that people are going to adapt to a new reality on a film-by-film basis that you don't even get a night out out of it, paying a premium price like $30 that we've been seeing with some of these things, $20 with some of them. I don't see it. And I think one of the things that's going to work against that is the growing explosion of subscription-based streaming. I think the whole idea of subscription-based streaming that we're seeing with Peacock, that we're seeing with Hulu and Disney and Amazon and HBO Max, I think that is doing the exact opposite of conditioning people people to, oh, drop 25 bucks for one movie that I'm just going to sit at home and watch when I've got, when I pay eight bucks for a streaming. And I really think that that whole model of the subscription-based service is unconditioning people from the idea of paying 25 to 30 bucks for one movie at home. So, but it could go that way, the way you're describing. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see. I, I, I well, don't know, but, but what do you think about Cinemark's move right now to try – like I see it as a best of both worlds option. Do you see a drawback for them doing it this way right now? Because I only see it as a positive. No, I look, I see it as a positive too. You know, I <clears throat> I, I do, and I think it's – again, it's a company – it's a company that is trying to adapt to the situation, the cards they've been dealt, and that's what companies do. That's what the, that's what companies that survive do. Uh, you know, we're one, – one of the – I think one of the great problems that a lot of maybe even American uh, companies have when it comes to our our great industries, say manufacturing, is that as automation has crept in and in most cases supplanted the need for workers, that American manufacturing did not pivot fast enough to um, to adapt to new methods of doing things, which is why so much of our manufacturing base went overseas. And I think in this case, look, I agree with you. That subscription services are are making people uh, think, well, why should I pay more? But what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to ingrain the idea that new movies, instead of being seen in a movie theater, new movies and paying a premium for new movies is a new thing. They have to convince people that even though – and it's going to be tough. I'm not saying it's going to work or they're even going to eventually make it work, but the delivery system is the same. It's still your TV. You know, and that's the real that's how they have to what they have to overcome. They're like, well, wait a minute. I'm already paying for Disney Plus. Why should I pay a premium to see Mulan on the same service? Well, people have to understand that what they're getting is a world premiere. You know, they're getting something they can't get any other way for for paying this money for another six months or whatever, three months. Now, that's a tough that's a tough road to travel. Well, so I'll tell I you, I, another you. reason why it's a tough road to travel, because Netflix has been doing it for years <clears throat> And premiering new movies that they've produced or acquired without charging their consumers an additional price. It's hard to come in when there's already an established body like Netflix because, I mean, we saw the revolt that happened when Disney Plus were charging their people 20 or 30 bucks, sorry, to watch Mulan. And they quickly retreated from that because now we've got Soul coming out. Yeah. And Disney was like, we heard you. Don't worry about it. We're just going to put it out because, again, that's the way – I mean, <laughs> Netflix has done it with varying degrees of success, but Netflix has been doing it that way for years. We got a brand yeah. new Dwayne The Rock Johnson movie, everybody. Boom. You're a subscriber. You get it for free. We got the new Adam Sandler, everybody. You're a subscriber. Boom. We got that new Charlie Theron, The Old Guard coming out. 
boom, you're a subscriber, you get it for free. So they've already kind of laid the groundwork and established this is what the norm is. Right. That transition's going to be hard. Million bucks. Yeah. No, yeah, it's good true. Point. It's, it's, it's true. But the one thing that Netflix has, or the, the one thing that the studios have that Netflix doesn't have is the name Paramount. Mm, or yeah. Sony or 20th century, or, you know, Disney. And that's the thing. That's what they have to delineate themselves as this is a major studio release. And the only way you can see it. the problem is, like you said, it's really hard because people are like, well, what's the difference? I mean, yeah, the old guard came out, but those were not movies. Netflix was never making movies for theatrical. And the, and the times they did, whether it was the Irishman or whether it was Roma, those were deals that they made with A-list filmmakers that would have been theatrical releases. But the general population doesn't know that, you know, they're, the general population's like, well, I don't understand. Like, what difference does it make? Because in most people's minds, they don't really care. Mm. <laughs> and then you're fighting, you're fighting <laughs> against a, a big, it's a big problem. The real problem is how do you make a $200 million? Will we be able to get $200 million movies anymore? The big end games, the big Star Wars movies. I mean, how do you even Star Wars? People are getting a far more satisfying Star Wars experience every week with the Mandalorian than they got with the Rise of Skywalker. And and let's face it, I mean, I would have thought Baby Yoda would have been played out by now. Nope. Now people are getting their sideshow <laughs> nope. life-size Baby Yodas and they're taking them with them all over the city and taking pictures and putting them up online. I mean, Baby Yoda's now eating eggs and people are like, Yoda's a lap, that Baby Yoda. I mean, he's not as nice as we thought he was, you know, doing funny stuff that people are loving. And people are still talking about The Mandalorian. I haven't heard anyone talk about Rise of Skywalker except in, in, in tones of great disdain for a long time. But man, yeah. Mandalorian, Star Wars is back. Obi-Wan is coming out, you know, and uh, it, it's it, – we're, we're in a – are they ever going to make $200 million movies again? Not if they I don't, don't have to. Not if they I don't know. have to, they won't. All right, question is for you guys. What do you think about this move by Cinemark? I actually think it's a pretty good move, maybe not long-term, but in the short term, I think it's a smart move. What do you guys think? Jump into the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number three. And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by Angel Cano. And Angel Cano writes, Did you see that Variety has reported that The Witcher has been put on pause due to four COVID tests found. This is sad and unfortunate. As somebody that is upset due to the delays in film and TV, cinemas closing, hearing this just makes things harder. I miss the movies and cinemas. I'm scared, but still trying to be positive for the movie industry and television. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in. And yeah, for those of you who have not yet seen the report or heard the news, many of you know The Witcher, the fantastic Henry Cavill series on Netflix, has been in the process of shooting season two. However, the set is now dark. They have had to shut things down as it's been reported that they discovered four cases among the crew. This is the report 
uh, that we get out of Deadline that writes, Netflix has halted production on the UK uh, in the UK on The Witcher following multiple positive COVID-19 cases we can reveal. The four positive cases are from today, we have confirmed, and Netflix will carry out an isolated round of testing of everyone involved in the show. Those impacted have been isolated and are not among the lead cast we hear. Now, this is unlike what happened, of course, on the set of the Batman, where it was Robert Pattinson who had it. But apparently there are four crew members. None of them are the lead cast. And that's important to point out here. And that's all good. The question is, how bad is this for The Witcher? And again, the question arises, does this mean that and prove that the safety protocols that these sets are putting in for movies and television to get production going, does this prove once again that these protocols do not work? Once again, I have to insist, have to insist this actually proves the quarantine practices, the safety protocols. This proves they are working. This proves they are working. The whole purpose, you know, we talked about this when the Batman stuff happened and, and, you know, they, found some people there had COVID, including Robert Pattinson. And the question came up, well, oh, you know, they're supposed to have all these safety protocols. Yes. And the safety protocols did exactly what they were designed to do. They quickly caught and identified who had it. They were able to very quickly shut things down, protect everybody else. And very quickly, like within weeks, Rob, very quickly, they were back up and running. If we take a second and look at, you know, uh, Jurassic World Dominion, the new Jurassic World movie, Rob, they just finished. They the, the, the director of Jurassic World Dominion just came out and said, that's a wrap. They finished production. They had twice were stopped as a result of COVID. But because they had the right protocols in place, they caught it. They prevented it from spreading among their cast and crew. They were shut down for a minimal period of time. They were able to get back to work and they were able to finish the project. The whole thing here with me looking at the situation with the Witcher is the exact same thing. This proves that their safety and their protocols work. These four people could have very quickly turned into 16 people, could have very quickly turned into 48 people could very quickly have turned into a headline of Henry Cavill's got COVID. If it could have done that very quick, but there's procedures, there's safety protocols, identified it, froze it, isolated it, locked it down. And guess what? They'll be back up and running pretty soon because the system worked. So Rob, I look at this and, and I see the fruits of the system, not the failures of the system. I see proof that this works and means that television shows and movies can produce and can get back to work and can create content, not the opposite. So while it is very unfortunate to hear that any crew members of any movie or series, in this case, The Witcher, have contracted it, it's, that is, that's terrible and we wish them all a very, very speedy recovery. The reality is, it means their safety protocols work. And I don't even think this is going to delay the show at all. I think this is still going to come out whenever they were targeting to have it come out. And if it happens again, the safety protocols will kick in again. Rob, am I looking at this too optimistically or could we see a longer shutdown for Witcher? What are your thoughts when you read this story? I think you're exactly correct. I mean, look, 
this what people have done, what production has done, this is not something that was taken lightly. What people have to understand is the only way that movies get made is if they can get insurance. They have to get bonded. And that means that your main actors, your directors, all the above the line people that are so vital to getting something made, the insurance companies have to be able to bond them because you're spending so much money. I mean, there are some movies that are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a day, a day in production. And each single day of production, if it's halted, that means that $100,000, poof, disappears. And that's when the insurance companies come in and cover those losses. The insurance companies, more than anything, don't want to lose money. But they also need their premiums that are being paid by these production companies. So you can bet your bottom dollar that the – literally, that you the, – the, the, the controls and the precautions that have put in, put in place to combat COVID are, are the best in the world. And they're adhered to very, very strictly. And they are, as you put it, they are working. They're catching these things. They're getting people into quarantine. It might be a disturbance, but they were, I think, this the, the new, it's Jurassic World Dominion, right? I yeah. think that they finished Jurassic World Dominion, a monstrous production that Universal has pulled out all the stops for, bringing back the old cast. This is a, this is a crown jewel in their upcoming film releases. Uh, they and it worked. They had COVID cases that they 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 discovered. They they made the proper changes or they shut things down. They quarantined people and they were still, while a pandemic is on the uptick and it is raging across the globe, they still finished it because their precautions are working. And I think that's that. I mean, you know what? For our industry, we should look upon this as a win. This yeah. is a good thing. It shows. That it can be done. And other countries, you know, it really makes me sad that on a federal level, we didn't jump to these kinds of precautions immediately because we wouldn't have had to shut down the country the way we did. Hmm. And this this goes to show what kind of the wherewithal that we need to have in order to make this all work, which means it's all hands on deck, man. If you want to make all this work, that means you've got to uh, rather than say, well, this is a, a hoax or whatever. We're not going to wear masks. They buckled down and made productions work. And that's how you run a business in a post-COVID world or in a current COVID world. And kudos to them. And again, I, I think we can expect to see Witcher back up and running pretty quickly because the system did work. And I actually don't think we're going to see any further delays from it. Now, again, who knows what happens moving forward? But as for this instance, I think we're okay. All right. Thanks for writing that in, man. All right. With that down and out of the way, let's now move on to main topic number four. And our fourth main topic today gets submitted to us by, oh gosh, let me see if I can get this name right. Will Dragulus, who writes, my question is regarding the Johnny Depp situation. I think Warner Brothers' decision to recast Depp is the right one to me, but I also find it a little bit hypocritical. <clears throat> it, it, uh, it is just strange to me that they got rid of Depp, but Ezra Miller is still attached to the film. Depp, of course, is found guilty in court. Well, no, not technically he was not, but we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Depp, of course, was found guilty in court, but there is also a video of Miller attacking a girl. I was just wondering, why do you think that Depp is out, but Miller remains attached? 
uh, to both this and the flash. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yeah, look, uh, we've been talking for a little while now about the, the Ezra Miller situation. I talked a few months ago about the seeming hypocrisy of Warner brothers that on one hand, they instantly fired Sawyer, uh, Hartley Sawyer, if I'm remembering his name correctly, the guy who played Elongated Man in, in TV's The Flash. They fired him very quickly for old tweets they found from, from years earlier. Yet they had Israel Miller choking a girl and they didn't do anything. And this roughly happened at the same time. And, and I've made videos about you know uh, Warner Brothers' apparent hypocrisy about this. It is inevitable that we've seen over the past couple of days a lot of people now drawing that comparison with Ezra Miller, especially considering that Johnny Depp and Ezra Miller were supposed to be in the same movie together. Well, they were in, in uh, Fantastic Beasts and the Crimes of Grindelwald. By the way, something I've said many times, I thought Johnny Depp was the best part of that movie. I like Crimes of Grindelwald. I know I know a bunch yeah. of people didn't. I like Crimes of Grindelwald, and I thought Johnny Depp was the best part of that movie. But And now they were supposed to be in this next Fantastic Beasts movie together. Why, some people would say. Have they gotten rid of Johnny Depp? It's unfair that they got rid of Johnny Depp while they keep Ezra Miller at the same time. And I think that is an interesting question to ask. It is an interesting question to ask. I do want to look, though, at there are some differences between Johnny Depp's situation and the Ezra Miller situation. Uh, that doesn't mean it changes the conclusion, but there are some differences that I think are worth noting here. And the first thing I think we should note here when looking at the Johnny Depp situation is this. I think as we step into the Campia classroom here, I think there is one fundamental difference between the Johnny Depp situation and the Ezra Miller situation that basically put Warner Brothers into a corner where they had no choice but to act. And that was what I think was Johnny Depp's biggest mistake. Johnny Depp never should have launched those lawsuits. Johnny Depp never should have launched those lawsuits because here's why. Before Johnny Depp launched that lawsuit against the newspaper in the UK and an upcoming one that he has against uh, Amber Heard in the US, before that happened, it was basically a TMZ he said, she said thing, at least amongst most, most the public it was a, he said, she said thing. Some people very much soured on Johnny Depp. Some people didn't, but Warner brothers was in a position that they could just ignore it, at least publicly, at least publicly behind the scenes. They were doing their own investigating, whatever, but publicly they were able to ignore it. They never commented on it. They never did anything to remove Johnny Depp. None of that stuff, because at that point it was a, he said, she said, once Johnny Depp made it a court issue, now it's suddenly like that. It was no longer a he said, she said. Now it's a court said. After months and months of evidence and testimony and arguments, a court actually came out and a judge said in a public statement that the allegations against Johnny Depp were actually, and he used the word, proven and were substantively true by taking this and making a court case out of it. Johnny Depp 
inadvertently transitioned this issue from being a he said, she said issue that Warner Brothers could just ignore and pretend didn't happen. Now it's a matter that a court said proof. The evidence says Johnny Depp did these things. Now, again, I don't know. I wasn't there, but I'm just saying this is what the court said. After months of testimony and months of evidence, the court said it has been substantively proven Johnny Depp did the things he's accused of. This puts Warner Brothers into a very, very awkward situation. This freezes Warner Brothers into an incredibly awkward situation because now that a court has weighed in on this thing, now that a court has decided to have a, a say in this, it changes the dynamic. Rob, let me give you a sports analogy for a second here. Actually, this isn't really an analogy as it is a direct comparison. In the NFL right now, there's a for those of you who follow sport, who don't follow sports, let me give you a little bit of background here. There's an extremely talented wide receiver by the name of Antonio Brown. Now, Antonio Brown had been suspended from the NFL. His suspension is over and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers signed him up. All right. And Tom Brady, of course, is the quarterback there who got his ass handed to him last night, by the way, by Drew Brees and the, the New Orleans Saints. But that's a story for another time. But they heard out Antonio Brown. How he's, he's made an argument to them that he's changed. Tony, John, uh, Tom uh, Brady and a bunch of other former teammates came up and spoke on his behalf and blah, blah, blah. So the Tampa Bay Buccaneers decided, OK, we're going to give you a chance. But here's the catch. Right now, Antonio Brown has an outstanding sexual assault case going on in court. And Coach Azarian made it very clear that, listen, we heard out Antonio. We believe that, you know, we believe what he's told us. And therefore, we want to give him a chance. But the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have said. If the court case happens and the court who hears all the evidence and all the testimony, a lot of which we here in Tampa Bay haven't heard, if a court decides that he did the things he's accused of, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have already said he's gone like that. He's going to be gone because now we've got a court saying that this is the case. And if that happens, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have said, well, at that point, he's going to be gone. This is how Warner Brothers has been put into a, a no-win situation. And listen, as critical as I have been, Rob, uh, against Warner Brothers regarding their, uh, you know, Hartley Sawyer issue the Ezra Miller, with yeah. Ezra Miller and the Johnny Depp issue, the reality is this. I feel bad for Warner Brothers because none of this is their fault. None of this no. is their fault. Warner Brothers is saying Warner Brothers didn't put out these stupid ass tweets seven or eight years ago that Hartley Sawyer did. They didn't do it. Somebody else associated with them did it. And they were the ones put into a situation where now they got to deal with it. Warner Brothers wasn't at some bar in a pandemic in Iceland and decided to choke a girl in front of a bar. Warner Brothers didn't do that. It wasn't them that did it. But somebody who is associated with them did, and so Warner Brothers gets mixed up in it. Warner Brothers wasn't involved in Johnny Depp's marriage and whatever domestic assault happened there. They didn't do it. They gave him a lot of money, are. though. 
They didn't have a lot of money, yes. But but here they are. Now they got to deal with it. Now they got to deal with it. And and so on that level, I kind of feel bad for Warner Brothers because they didn't ask for any of this. And now they're being criticized by assholes like me for how they're for how they're responding to it. And I do have some some valid criticisms for how they're responding to it and all that kind of stuff. But again, I feel kind of bad for Warner Brothers because it wasn't their fault. But the point is this, is that it gets elevated to an entirely different level, Rob, once now a court is involved. And once a court says, we've heard all the months of evidence and testimony, 90 plus percent of which the public have never seen or heard. And our determination after hearing all of this is that you did these things. And now that a court said that, it puts Warner Brothers into a very, very difficult position. Yes, it does. What do you do? Because now it's not just about what you think. Now you got to deal with this. Now, and that's where the big difference comes between that and the Ezra Miller situation, right? As of right now, because you know that I believe that Warner Brothers and Ezra Miller probably paid for a very nice vacation for that young lady and many vacations to come to never have this, never see the inside of a court. But the fact that's the difference when the Johnny Depp situation, we have a court finding and issuing an opinion on what the, they saw in the evidence with the Ezra Miller situation. We don't now. I still don't approve of Warner brothers, just sticking their head in the sand and pretending like nothing ever happened with the Ezra Miller situation, but it didn't get elevated. Like the Johnny Depp did the Johnny Depp situation did Now, Rob. I get it. Johnny Depp, you know, he felt his reputation got besmirched. He wanted to maybe try whether he was right to do so or wrong to do so. He he thought he could take a stab at, you know, getting his credibility back, whatever. But the reality was he was in a better position prior to starting these court cases than he is now. And I, I think at the end of the day, he's going to have to sit back and realize launching those court cases was a mistake. It was a mistake because it just put Warner Brothers in a tough situation. And I agree. There is still a a level here on Warner Brothers part of hypocrisy of how they've dealt with these three different situations, the Johnny Depp, the Hartley Sawyer, the Ezra Miller. There is a degree of hypocrisy there that I think Warner Brothers does need to address. But I, I think with this court finding, Johnny Depp basically put their backs against the wall and they were pretty much left with no choice. But I don't know, Rob, you see all this. How do you describe or explain the different approaches that Warner brothers has taken with say an Ezra Miller situation and a Johnny Depp situation, two guys who are supposed to be in the same upcoming movie. How do you see all this? Well, I mean, I think it, it's, it's, you know, not every situation is the same. And I, I think after, like you said, after a court case, after a long investigation, um, the Johnny Depp situation is, and let's, let's remember that it's not just Ezra Miller and Johnny Depp. It's also Amber Heard, who's going to be in Aquaman too. So and, 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 and don't forget, and the Snyder cut. Zack Snyder wants her and, in the Snyder and, cut. So what, what does Zack Snyder, Snyder do now? Yes, and also, you know, it it, it 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 we also let's face it, we live in this world where the Me Too movement, believe all women. It's a little difficult to to when a man has been abusive and it has been it's abuse that has been. Uh, what do you, let's say proven, you know, and, and the court, the courts were pretty definitive about that. 
if if you are no, employing notably employing somebody who is who has abused women, what does that say about your company? Now, the Ezra Miller situation, we saw one incident that was a little nebulous as to what was going on. And um, I, I think after probably Warner Brothers did an investigation there, the situation obviously is different than what went on with Johnny Depp. We don't know how. Uh, it's not really our business to know. But apparently Warner Brothers felt confident enough to move forward with Ezra Miller in both a, 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 another Fantastic Beasts movie and The Flash and the Snyder Cut. So, you know, you have to take it on faith. These companies, there's again, they have hundreds of millions of dollars riding on these decisions. These are not decisions that are taken lightly. And, um, you know, it's it's we live in we live in strange times, very volatile times. And you never know what's going to happen with social media and people taking up arms against other people. Uh, it's it's a hard one. But clearly there are certain uh, situations that are different as far as the studios are concerned. And like you pointed out, even in, in, in professional sports, I like the idea, though, that until someone has gone through the courts and they've actually been found guilty of criminal activity, that's when you punish somebody. You know, we've been living in this quick uh, hair trigger world where people are having their livelihoods destroyed based on conjecture, on social media, and, and that that has to end. And I think that what Warner Brothers is doing, they're waiting until there's investigations being done, both internally and externally, and they're making their decisions based on their findings. And that's the way it should be done, I think. It is very interesting because you bring up the Snyder Cut. It is very interesting because now not only have we had a Fantastic Beast situation where you had Ezra and Johnny, two, two players in this. Now we've got Snyder Cut coming, which has also two players. We have Amber Heard and we have Ezra Miller. And it's going to be really interesting to see what, if anything, Warner Brothers is going to do or what Zack Snyder is going to do regarding those situations. So it's it's just going to be – and again, as much as I am sitting here crapping on Warner Brothers, I do feel for them. Because, uh, because again, I get it. They're just there trying to make movies. They're trying to make money and make movies that people like. And then all of a sudden, these assholes that work for them go out and do stupid shit in public that reflects badly on them. And now they've got to sit there and figure out how to sort out this mess that wasn't their fault in the first place. It's 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 tough. It's hard. But it is their job to now sort this out and figure out what to do. And it's. It's going to be interesting. Again, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Fantastic Beasts. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with Snyder Cut. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with all the stuff. And don't forget, we still have another court case coming. There's still another court case coming. So let's see what happens after that as well. Question is, guys, what do you think? Is the big difference between like these different scenarios? Why did, you know, Warner Brothers move on one and not maybe another? I personally think it's pretty clear that's because one has an actual court ruling involved. Others do not. Maybe you see some other variations there. And by the way, don't don't come in here with any of these stupid bullshit. I'm five years old and I believe that a judge was paid off. Don't come to, with me with any of that shit. But if you got some real other stuff there that I'm not considering here, please jump in, throw it in the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys, 
with all that down, let's get on to taking your live questions, shall we? We've had a bunch of you guys throwing in questions, and uh, we're going to see what you guys have to say and what it is you want to talk about. If you want to send in a live comment or question, simply use the tip link that's in the top of the description of this video. Just click on it there, or you can enter it manually, streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You'll be getting your comment or question on the show if it's within reason. And of course, you'll be supporting the channel at the same time. All right. With that down, let's get over and start getting into it. And we are going to start things off here with Tyler Yates, who writes, I am not ready for Supernatural to end. There will be tears less than two weeks now. I am going to miss Sam and Dean. Tyler, you know I've been watching this show for many, many, many years. And I, I, I'm i not caught up. I did not see the last episode. So I still have to get caught up and watch the last episode. But uh, I'm with you. It still doesn't seem real to me that this show is coming to an end. It just doesn't seem real to me. I don't think it's going to feel real to me until probably after finale. When, when we hear carry on my wayward son at the beginning of the final episode, I don't know that it's going to be real to me. All right. Derek Woodrun writes morning, John. Did you notice Appa from Kim's Convenience is one of the X-Wing pilots? Baby Yoda is a troublemaker through and through. Yes, he is though. He is a troublemaker though. A lot of us forget. And Rob, me and Ann were talking about this the other day. Some people acting shocked. <gasps> baby Yoda was doing such an evil thing of eating that poor woman's eggs. Baby Yoda's a baby. Baby Yoda doesn't have a moral compass. Baby Yoda sees, oh, canister. Hey, baby Yoda doesn't even speak. He just sees a can with some food in it. And he went and ate it. That's what a baby's going to do. It's a mischievous little thing. But yes, I absolutely noticed. Appa, Rob, I've been telling you about this show, Kim's Convenience. I've been telling you about this show. And when I saw him as one of the X-Wing pilots, I just, I just, I had such a smile on my face, dude. I had such a smile on my face. And I loved that episode. Rob didn't. And I know a bunch of other people didn't as well. But we've got another episode coming this Thursday. I cannot wait. All right. Do you know the guy from Kim, Kim Kim's Convenience, the actor, is a huge fanatical Star Wars fan that cosplays and makes his own armor? Yeah, actually, and there was a big story. I remember last November, there was actually a story. Uh, Paul, I keep forgetting his two middle names. Paul Lee is is the guy who plays Appa on Kim's Convenience. Uh, he got to visit the set of Mandalorian uh, back in uh, back in November or October, something like that. Should have known that they were going to give him a spot and give him a bit of a role. It was really, really cool to see. All right, let's move on here. Uh, I am, am I really here, writes. Uh, top 10 Star Trek slash Star Wars movie rankings. Number one, Empire Strikes Back. Number two, A New Hope. Number three, Return of the Jedi. Number four, Voyage Home. I do love Voyage Home. Uh, number five, Undiscovered Country. I love that one too. Number six, Star Trek 2009. I also love that one. Number seven, Star Trek Beyond. Number eight, Force Awakens. Number nine, Wrath of Khan. And number 10, First Contact. Rob, actually, I'm curious. Thank you for sending that in. Am I really here? Rob, I'm curious. I... <sighs> A lot of Star Trek fans, when I when I talk to them, first contact usually gets gets brought up quite often and spoken about with a lot of affection. I have to admit, I have never been a big fan of first contact. I, that is not one of my favorite Star Trek. I'm just curious, where is it with you? I don't know that you and I have ever had that discussion. No, we never have. And I'll tell you something. Uh, back in 1996, when the movie came out, I was the critic at large for Sci-Fi Universe magazine that was published by Larry Flint. 
And I wrote wow. an article with my. Uh, I know, right? I wrote an article with my friend Dave Hargrove called "Worst Contact: Why First Contact Is the Worst Star Trek Film." <laughs> and it it was relatively tongue in cheek, and I understand why people like it. But to me, one of the things that uh, I really bothered me was a lot of the material with the Borg had already been covered and covered much better than it was in that movie. And also they added the idea of a Borg queen to that film, which to me completely undermined the whole point of the Borg in the first place. There was no leadership. The Borg was a hive mind. And by adding a, a villain, you sort of really dumbed the Borg down. I mean, the Borg are like a plague of locusts, but now there's, there was leadership. And I, I thought, uh, and while it's fun, I can enjoy it. There's things in it I like. There's a lot of stuff in it that just makes no sense at all. The whole idea that the Borg have gone back to this one point in time where first contact is going to happen, and it, it, it's it's pretty ludicrous. Although I like Jonathan Frakes. It was his first time directing a feature film, and I love seeing the cast, and obviously Picard's in, in action hero mode, but they also fundamentally changed the character of Picard you know, in that movie. And I'm with you, man. Not one of my favorite Star Trek films. Uh, you know, I got to say, uh, Ziggy in the uh, in the uh, live chat was just saying, you know what Star Trek needs? Baby Borg. Baby Borg. <laughs> I think, so yeah. there you go. That solves it. Get a baby Borg. It's going to be the most popular thing ever. Okay. Uh, with that, let's keep on moving here. Uh, next up, we've got uh, The Sock, who writes, one of two. Anime recommendation, Psychopass. I actually watched this one a while ago. It's a crime thriller series. Think Minority Report, but instead of visions from the future, they monitor citizens' psychopaths, mental state, and arrest or execute if your crime coefficient is too high. Some are uh, some are kept are as enforcers and are viewed as scum and property. Season two isn't quite as strong, but it's still quite good. That's like an interesting twist. On that whole minority, I, I, it does sound a little like a twist on Minority Report. Rob, have you heard anything about Psychopaths? Have you heard about this one? No, no, and uh, you no, know, I have not. But that doesn't mean there's so much great anime that I don't know. I mean, I just got your name on 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 a, in a steelbook, and yeah. that's you know that's I'm just catching up with everything. So. Yes. I'm sure, but hey, listen, seriously, The Sock, thanks for writing that. I'm sure a bunch of people are now going to go and check that out, thanks to your recommendation. All right, next up, Certified Loverboy writes, now that both Tenet and Mulan have been released for a couple of months now, which was the bigger disaster for the studio, both PR and financially? I know they both lost money, but which one lost more? Well, I'll tell you what, Certified, and that's, that is a good topic to bring up. I'll tell you which one ultimately is going to be the bigger loser on the, all this. And Rob, I'll, I'd like to hear your your input as to why. The bigger loser in all this is going to be Mulan. Mulan is ultimately going to end up being the bigger loser. Number one, because we heard that those initial numbers that came out, yeah, the reports, it turns out, were way wrong. It actually made tons less than what was initially reported and all that kind of stuff. But here's the main reason why ultimately Mulan is going to be the much bigger loser. Tenet hasn't even done a home video thing yet. And Tenet, when it starts its home video, is going to start already with $350 million in its pocket. 
Mulan did not. Mulan decided to forego all theatrical. And while, you know, obviously under normal circumstances, Tenet's theatrical run was a disaster by under normal circumstances. The reality is it did do a theatrical release and even in a pandemic made $350 million. And now when it starts its home video run, it starts with a $350 million head start over Mulan. It was a more expensive movie to make the Mulan as well. Make no mistake. But that's why I believe at the end of the day, the Mulan experiment, not only that, Rob, but it also, I think, hurt. I think it hurt Disney Plus's relationship with its consumers with that whole thing. And there was that, too. So I see it pretty clearly that the big loser in all that was Mulan. What do you think, Rob? I think 100%. Um, you know, we've both done stories on our shows about uh, Christopher Nolan being happy. He says he's happy with the box office performance of tenant because what else is he going to say right i'm like you know chris you lost tens of millions of dollars for your own bank account but whatever uh but like you said 350 million dollars worldwide at least that's something uh remember the studio takes home about half of that and uh, maybe even not that depending on what the chinese box office was but it still has that put towards its production costs and, you know, they've announced the big release that comes out uh, on physical media in December. I may or may not have already pre-ordered it, although you know the answer to that one. And uh, I think that it did probably much better. And the fact that Disney is now releasing Mulan on physical media when they were backing away from it is a big deal. So I think that that shows you that Disney is actually going to release Mulan on home video. Shows that it didn't do so well, John. Didn't do yep. so well. Yep, indeed. All right, let's keep going here. James Argento writes, Jim Gaffigan has joined Star... I heard about this. I, By the way, I like Jim Gaffigan as a comedian very much. But anyway, Jim Gaffigan has joined Stargirl as the voice, uh, as the voice of the wish-granting pimp, pink imp, pimp, pink imp, Thunderbolt, most likely teaming with Jakeem Williams, mentioned in season one, to become Jakeem Thunder and join JSA version two to fight the Shade, Eclipso, and Shiv. Well... I, I I will I will tell you I don't care <laughs> because Stargirl is not a show that I watch. I Rob, I, I can't remember what you're where you are in this, but I because I like a number of the DC, you know, television stuff, I tried Stargirl. And I was very interested that Luke Wilson was in it. Because I like Luke Wilson. I like both the Wilson brothers, to be honest with you. I like Luke and I like Owen. So I gave it a shot and I, I think I did three episodes and I'm like, this is not for me. And I ditched on it pretty quick, was not interested at all. I, I've, I have no intention ever to return to it. Hey, other people watch it and that's awesome. But there are shows that I watch that other people don't. And that's cool too. But uh, yeah, so I heard Jim Gavigan's doing that. That's great, I guess, but I don't really care. Have you kept up with Stargirl or, or anything like that? No, I, I haven't watched it at all. And I, I, I oh. do want to... I do want to catch up with it, but I, I have not watched it at all. I would love for you to at least watch the first three episodes and then hear what your take, because my take was it didn't work for me, but I'd be really curious to see if you saw something, you see something different in it. So, all right, uh, there we are with that. But, you know, I always do like Jim Gaffigan, I got to say. All right, next up, we got Casey McNatt who writes, Hey, John, with the latest news of Johnny Depp asked to resign from Fantastic Beasts, do you think it's best for them to cast Colin Farrell and bring him back just to finish the story of, of uh, Griswold? I don't think. No, L let's put it this way. Rob, I can't remember if you and I were talking about this, but I 
if they announced that Colin Farrell was going to come back to to finish it out, okay, that's fine. But there's no real, you know, mandate here to do that. That was just like one guy that Grind, uh, Grindelwald was impersonating. So I don't think there's actually any need for him to be that. I think you can go out and get just about any actor. I, I think it was, uh, I think it was Cinema Blend today that I saw put out an article suggesting like eight different actors that could come in and play Grindelwald. One that really intrigued me was actually Benedict Cumberbatch. Mm. I think Benedict Cumberbatch was actually a kind of an interesting idea, but they had a bunch of that. So if they say it's going to be Colin Farrell, I'm cool with that. But I don't think there's any need for it to be Colin Farrell. Rob, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I why not? You know, it'll be like Batman, different actors. Warner Brothers is used to replacing their their leads. They could get away with doing something like that. I, I, I think in a way it's kind of interesting that in this franchise we'll get different takes on this character in every movie. Um, why not? Michael, you know, in the, uh, Michael in the live chat is suggesting Chevy Chase. You got my vote. I'm down. <laughs> Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase is Grindelwald. All right, let's move on here. Uh, Sam P writes, hey, John, do you think it's just a coincidence that both the Mandalorian and Star Trek Discovery are being released on the same weekday? Or do you think it's because fans of the genre will tend to watch both? Uh, we've seen this before with comic book movies. Honestly, Sam, and I mean this wholeheartedly, there are not 78 days in a week. There are seven. And there's a lot of shows. There are a lot of shows and you're going to, your show is going to come out on one of seven days. And if you know, it opened on another day, it'd be open against other shows. And we, why are they open? No, I, I don't think it means anything at all. I honestly don't. I, I don't think there's any meaning to it whatsoever. It's just that they decided that day of the week happened to be a good day of the week for them to release their show along with about 25 other shows that come out on the same day of the week. So I really don't think there's, any connection, any uh, rationality that that equates the two whatsoever, I, I think it's a totally despondent thing. Rob, do you see any sort of connection there about why maybe we see both of them coming out on the same day? No. I mean, you know, I think in this day and age uh, with with the world the way it is, if you want to see something, you're going to catch up with it. You know, you're going to watch it. I think this idea of competition is, is going to – Eventually, we're not going to think of it in those kind of terms anymore, you know, because mm -hmm. we catch up with things. You don't. It's so funny. Everybody like we have to watch it that day. You know, I think with the Mandalorian and the boys and these these kinds of shows, it's like especially in our our part of the woods, our neck of the woods. It's like, dude, if you haven't watched the Mandalorian the day it comes out, it's, it'll get spoiled for you. But I think with certain shows or certain movies the day they come out, I don't see it as competition or I think they they just schedule these things. And, and maybe in a way, if anything, if there's similar things coming out on the same day, they're hoping the energy from one will feed the other and vice versa. Look, it's, it's not like the old days. Like I remember right. when I was a kid and it was like, ooh, the Cosby show and the Simpsons are <laughs> coming out because it used to be you had to choose. You had to choose which one you were going to watch Thursday night at eight o'clock. I have no idea if that was the time. That was the time. That was the era. You had to pick Tuesday night, eight o'clock. You got to pick if you're going to sit down and watch Cosby. Mandalorian comes out at 12.01 a.m. You know, Discovery does not. 
it it's so it's most of these streaming things most people don't watch the second they drop they watch later that day or the next day or or whatever so it's really not the same thing anymore it's it's a it's a totally different thing um anyway let's move on here next up we've got uh potterhead who writes I could imagine Warner Brothers' decision if Depp was playing a hero, but Grindelwald, one of the most evil and murderous wizards of all time, a character meant to be disliked. No, I, I'm sorry, Potterhead. Listen, listen to me. No, just no. That's that's not going to stop. That's like saying, oh, let's get O.J. Simpson in in a Star Trek movie. As long as he's playing a Borg, everything's cool. You know, it it just does not work like that. Uh, unfortunately, it's not like they're going to go. Oh, okay. A guy that a, a guy that the court says is a wife beater. We're gonna you're gonna put him in your movie. Oh, but it's cool because he's playing a villain. It's not going to be looked at that way at all. Nor should it be looked at that way. Um, so no, that's just uh, something we gotta kind of put away. Okay, next up, uh, Campia ear sized milk bag writes. Do you think Black Widow uh, makes the same amount as Tenet if it had been released in theaters under the circumstances of the pandemic? That's an interesting question, Rob. Like if Widow, Black Widow, had been put out, no other big major blockbusters had come out. It had been several months before any films had come out in the pandemic and it had been put out kind of on its own. Would Black Widow... Uh, you know what? I'm going to guess it probably would have roughly done the same. I'm going to guess it. There's some because I think there's some arguments as to why it would have made less and some arguments as to why they would have made a little bit more. I think they would have canceled each other out. My guess, and it's only speculation, we'll never know for sure. It's an interesting question. But yeah, I, I think it probably would have ended up doing about the same. What do you think, Rob? I think you're probably right about that. I mean, maybe it would have. Look, it really depends if if Black Widow was a hugely satisfying experience, like if it just totally kicks ass, I think word of mouth on Tenet actually hurt it because it turned out to be perplexing to some people, whether it was the sound, the storyline wasn't as, as I, I think people were expecting inception levels of awesomeness from Tenet. And I don't think it delivered those goods. And I think if it did, and it became more of a water cooler. It was more of a water cooler movie about whether people were actually going to go see it than how good it was. A lot of people loved it, but I heard a lot of people who didn't love it, uh, their opinions. I have yet to see it, but I, I do think Black Widow, if the film was had really, really, really good word of mouth, it would have been like this must see. And I think people would have would have gone to see it. But uh, that's I feel that way about every movie. A movie has to be great for people to want to. Uh, especially during a pandemic to go out and see it. But, you know, uh, it's hard to say. I think Black Widow probably would have made more money than Tenet did. All right. Maybe not by much. Okay. Next up, an anonymous uh, writer writes in, I just want you to know that you and Robert have supported uh, through this difficult time for the movie fan community. I also really hope that Warner Brothers takes this as an advantage uh, not to push back Wonder Woman 84. I still hope the cinemas will recover and we need to have hope. Uh, listen, I have – there are two things that are certain to me. One is that I absolutely want Wonder Woman 84 to come out on Christmas Day. I I want to go back to the movie theaters so badly, and I would love to go and see Wonder Woman 84. What a great way to end what a crappy year. Great way to end a crappy year. But I also have very little doubt that Wonder Woman 84 is, in fact, going to be moved. 
I think the fact that they just recently, that Disney just moved off new guy and, or a free guy, I should say, and death in the Nile, uh, just kind of cements that. And I, I literally think we are probably within 24 hours of hearing them moving that. I don't know that by the way, no insider information. This is just me guessing, but I think we're going to hear very, very soon about that moving, but I'll keep my fingers crossed anonymous. I'll keep my fingers crossed with you. All right. Chris writes in, John, have you watched the documentary? I am Heath Ledger. It's amazing. I highly recommend it. Uh, And in the film, it mentions that before Heath's death, his directorial debut was going to be a film adaptation of the queen's gambit. Now, a Netflix, now a show on Netflix. I have not, and I've never heard of that. Rob, like, have, have you heard of this uh, at all? I have not, but I, I did read an article about, uh, or briefly, but I didn't, uh, about how the producer who acquired this book has been trying to make it for decades. Really? And so, yeah. It is uh, funny I, how often, like, people don't realize, like, a lot of times movies come out and it's like, these movies have actually been in the work for three years, five years. 20 years like it, it it can be a long arduous process but no i did not know that that at some point heath ledger was lined up to direct that that would have been interesting to see thanks so much for sharing that chris that was really good to know all right next up the living tribunal writes the court of public opinion is a pitch in my eyes neither amber or johnny is innocent both should be punished equally it takes two to tango warner brothers is making a snap decision uh if i were them i would have waited for the u.s trial all right well look a couple of things that should be pointed out here number one it, this isn't about public opinion it's about what did a court say And you can say in your eyes, neither Amber or Johnny, and that's fine. That's fine. We're all entitled to have our opinions and we can have whatever opinions we want based on whatever information is available to us. That's fine. But we also have to take a step back and say, I have my opinion, but I understand that my opinion is based on a fragment of the information that that was made available to the courts. And in seeing all of the information and hearing all of the accurate context and hearing all of the testimony and hearing all of the arguments, the court determined that they felt Johnny Depp did do the things he's accused of. Now, again, I wasn't there. Uh, I am a big Johnny Depp fan. But it doesn't matter what my eyes see it or your eyes see it. We, we don't know. We simply don't know. And a court did. So there's that. Also out of this, only one person actually had a court say they did the things that they're accused of. And that was Johnny Depp. So, I, and listen, I'm not trying to say that the Amber Heard stuff is irrelevant The Amber Heard conversation will come up and it should come up and we'll see what the U.S. court says about it moving forward. But at this point, there's no reason to believe. And again, I say this is a Johnny Depp fan, but at this point, there is no reason to believe that the U.S. court, which is going to hear the same testimony that the U.K. court did. That is going to see the same evidence that the UK court did. That is going to be presented with the same arguments that the UK court did. There's no reason to believe right now that the US court is going to come up with a different different opinion. It could. 
and that will reshape the conversation if it does. But, uh, but yeah, Warner Brothers, I, I don't, once a UK court said something, I thought they would have waited to, for the US court case, but really their backs were then put against the wall. You know, I was wrong. I, I really thought they would have waited until after the US court case, but the reality is their backs were put against the wall. Once a court says it, you don't have much wiggle room left. And that's the situation they found themselves in. So we'll see what happens. Uh, we should, we will see what, what happens. All right, next up. Uh, we've got Min Tran who writes, uh, which supernatural angel possession was the most interesting? Gladriel's with Sam, Lucifer with Castiel, Michael with Dean. Uh, also, I meant soulless Jack, not soulless Jake. Okay, I, 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 see, I, I, I got what you meant there. Um, on, most interesting, I'm going to go Michael with Dean. Uh, now, honestly, I was never really taken with any of the big possession storylines, but the recent Michael with Dean, it took an interesting twist. Like with the Archangel Michael being a giant dick, being from an alternate universe, that was kind of interesting. All of them have been fairly interesting, but I think that one, Mintran, to me, was the one that caught my attention the most. All right. Luke, I am your plumber, writes. I was wondering if anyone else thought that Baby Yoda might become a Sith Lord in uh, might become a Sith Lord. The more he's attached to Mando, the more he might unleash his power if something happens to Mando, especially since uh, no one is there to teach him the ways of the Force. Thanks. I mean, it's Rob. I don't know what you think about this. That's impossible to say. We are and we keep forgetting we are dealing with a baby. If we are dealing with, in relative terms, a teenager. We could have those discussions, but what's going to happen to baby Yoda in 150 years when he starts coming into adolescence and all that kind of stuff? I, I it's, it's impossible to say I, you don't see anything. You don't see any inherent meanness or cruelty or whatever in it. But then again, there was no inherent meanness or cruelty in young Anakin either, but I just think it's far too early to even speculate about that. What do you think, Rob? Uh, yes, I think it's it is far too early to speculate about that. I mean, give it time. Give it time. Give it time. We'll find out soon enough. All right, let's uh, move on here. Next up, Dark Knight Rises writes, Hey, John, anything new on Kevin Spacey? He seems to have completely disappeared. I wonder why. Uh, not a fan, but certainly interested if anything is going to happen to him. Uh, or will he eventually make a comeback? I, I don't see... I look, I say this as somebody who is a big fan of the work of Kevin Spacey as somebody who is a big fan of the work of Kevin Spacey. I don't see how he ever comes back. I, re I really don't. I, I don't see how that happens at all. And quite frankly, I stopped tracking, you know, what, which legal proceedings were at which stage with him and all that kind of stuff. I have no idea. But um, hey, listen. Everybody likes a comeback story, but I don't see Kevin Spacey becoming a player again um, in, in, yeah. in this field. And I say that as a fan of his work. I, I don't know, Rob. Could could we see a Spacey comeback? Uh, you know, I, I don't think so. Uh, it, it really – the the allegations against him were rather distasteful. And I, you know, I don't – I don't see it. I don't see it happening. It's it's unfortunate, but I just don't see it happening. Mm. But you never know. Yeah, never know. I mean, you know, there could be some legal twists and turns that I don't know. Maybe it's a, be a great story someday, but that's that's where we're at right now. All right. 
Uh, Dark Knight Rises also writes, Hey, John, one of my favorite film characters is uh, Paul Schofield's role as Thomas More in A Man for All Seasons. Uh, here is a hero who is noble, principled, highly educated, and a devout man. Do you know of other similar heroes in film history? So for those of you who don't know, uh, at the time, Sir Thomas More, now known as St. Thomas More, Thomas More was a... Uh, servant, I believe he was high Lord High Chancellor of England. I think Ken, King Henry VIII made him Lord High Chancellor of England. Now, St. Thomas More, or Sir Thomas More at the time, was also a very, very devout Catholic. Very devout Catholic. And um, basically, Henry VIII wanted to split from the Catholic Church, create the Church of England, of which he was the high, he was basically the high the, the head of the church. The king wanted to also make himself the head of the church. They wanted to split from the Catholic church in England because the church, the, the Catholic church would not let him annul his marriage. So he decided, well then screw this. I'm going to make my own church. The problem is St. Thomas More, who was the high chancellor, Lord high chancellor of England uh, said, no, that's wrong. And ultimately uh, the king found him guilty of treason and executed him when St. Thomas More refused to acknowledge the king as the head of England. And what's really interesting, Rob, about the, the execution of Sir Thomas More was that as he died, as he was being executed, his final words were, and I, I might be off a syllable here or there, but basically his final words were, I die as a faithful servant to the king and God's first. I die as a faithful servant to the king. He saw himself as being a faithful servant to the king. God's word. And yes, and I, one of the reasons I know, John, why do you know so much about St. Thomas More? I know so much about St. Thomas More because I went to Catholic high school. I went to Catholic school my whole life. And I went to the great St. Jean de Brebeuf High School, the Fighting Braves. I went to the St. Jean de Brebeuf High School up on the Hamilton Mountain. And there was only one other Catholic high school on the Hamilton Mountain. There were many others downtown. But the only other, our main rival our other big high school up in the mountain when I was there was St. Thomas More High School. And so they were big. So I can tell you all about St. Jean de Bourbeuf and I can tell you all about Sir Thomas More. As far as <laughs> have there ever been, there's there's my little trip down memory lane. As far as uh, are there other heroes? I mean, basically, Rob, isn't it true to say that 90% of our movies and TV shows paint the heroes as noble and selfless. And I mean, that's, that's not rare that movies will do that. Am, am I incorrect? I no. I mean, uh, you know, you're making a movie about somebody you're, 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 you're painting them. I think is heroic. Absolutely. That's kind of the point, isn't it? If you're making a movie about, it. and, and by the way, heroes come in all shapes, sizes, colors, creeds, heroes are heroes. Whether you're telling the story of uh, a woman who, who a black woman who refuses to, not sit in the back of the bus or whether you're making a movie about Luke Skywalker, you know, heroes are heroes and, and you portray them as such and you can find them everywhere around the universe or in your small town. All right. Uh, let's bring up the next one here. Dwayne Jackson writes, hello, John and family. I was just wondering with movie theaters being closed uh, due to the pandemic with studios having to borrow money to finance movies, what happens if they are unable to pay the money they borrow during an uncertain time we are facing? Well, here's the reality, Dwayne. They're going to be able to repay it. 
it, it's just there. It's going to take time. The problem for the studio, of course, is the longer it takes them to pay it, the more they have to pay. Right. So you get you're going to get some debtors to like uh, a Warner Brothers film or a Paramount film, whatever. And would they like to get their money quickly? Sure. Is the worst thing in the world that they're going to have to wait and they're going to get more money out of it? Yeah, that, that they're OK with that. <laughs> I mean, that's that's our you want to let that 18 percent penalty kick in? No problem. But listen, when you're talking about dollar figures that are so high, <clears throat> they get paid back. Deals get made. It's it's really not going to be that terrible of an issue, particularly if we come out of this pandemic sooner rather than later. Uh, so I don't think it's a big issue. But Rob, I know you delve in this world a lot more. What does basically happen, though, if the studios can't pay back their debts? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you know, like I think the same thing that happens to everyone else. Uh, if they're going to default on their loans, they have to deal with creditors. They have to they're not going to necessarily declare bankruptcy because They've got their creditors are willing to extend them lots of credit, but it just costs you more money. You know, as we all know, if you don't pay your debts, you don't pay your credit card bills, the interest payments increase and you I don't think the studios will wind up in some kind of a death spiral. But uh, it, it could be very, very problematic because on these more expensive movies, They've got, especially when you have multiple films that have cost hundreds of millions of dollars to make, those interest payments rack up pretty quickly. I, I you know, we covered that article, or, or I don't know if we did on this show or my show, but MGM, I thought No Time to Die was covered, and MGM's paying a million dollars a month, you know, in interest, and that's where's that where's that money come from? And that's that's tough, man. That's a lot of cash, and with No Time to Die coming out a year late, that you're looking at twelve million dollars. Poof. Yeah. And even though people are like, well, it's only 12 million. Oh, really? Well, when if, could you come up with 12 million bucks? That's a lot of money. Indeed it is. Uh, all right. Next up, the Wakandan Forever writes, uh, am I on the right one? Hold on a second. Give me, give me one moment here. Uh, yes, that was Dwayne. Okay, next one up. Wakanda Forever saying, hey, John, I'm in, singing, uh, I'm in a singing kind of mood today. Na, 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 na. Hey, 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 goodbye. Okay, stick to movies. Uh, I saw Akira for the first time at my local theater, a Ooh. film I always heard about and remembered the cycle in Ready Player One, a really unique, cool film. You know what, Rob? We've said in the crappiness of the pandemic. Um, we try to look for the little silver linings in the midst of any crappy situation. You try to find and hold on to the little silver linings for some people that has been able, being able to watch some classic, great movies for the first time on a big screen, the way it was meant to be seen. Uh, and Akira, yeah, look, ready player one, I thought was a great movie for many, many different reasons. Uh, a lot of great little things thrown in there, but Rob, that original Akira movie, when I got to, I've never seen, I have never seen Akira on the big screen. I mean, I've seen Akira many times, but I've never seen it on the big screen. Have you ever had that opportunity? I have. I've oh, seen really? it on the big screen. Yes. I saw it. I want to say, God, I saw it in the early nineties on the big screen, but the first time I saw Akira was the very first I'd heard about it. The very first time I went to Comic-Con in 1988, when I first lived in LA, the the only thing I bought was the import Japanese laser disc of Akira. And it had no English subtitles because it was in Japanese. And when I started going to USC, my roommate and I at the time found a Japanese exchange student, poor kid, 
and, and we dragged him back to our a dorm, or not our dorm, we had an apartment. <laughs> And and we we watched Akira all the way through. It took like six hours and made him translate the movie. Like every every couple of minutes, we're like, okay, what did they say? <laughs> <laughs> and and that was the first time that I ever saw Akira. And it's funny, John. I recently just picked up the Japanese 4K Akira disc. Of course, you um, did. <laughs> I it, I just got that, and it's coming out here too. From I think Funimation's putting out, but I got the the special edition box set. Um, and Akira has sort of been a mainstay in my life. I love Akira. Um, I have the beautiful uh, box set of the hardcover uh, manga the, right here on the shelf. You can't see it, but I have it right here. I'm a huge fan of the, that, the whole story. The movie is a distillation of the manga. If you like the movie, I, I, I highly recommend reading the manga because it's really interesting. I really loved it. But, I, you know, Akira was the first time. It was it, it blew me away because it's a movie where they're they're they were animating like neon lights in a city. Yeah. And I really hadn't seen anything like that. And the music, the opening motorcycle chase. I used to just watch that over and over and over again. I'm a huge fan of Akira. And they still are trying to get some kind of live action thing done to it. So we'll see if that ever happens. All right. Next up. Hey, John, love the show. Writes. You've defended Batman killing in Batman versus Superman because uh, this interpretation of Batman never established this uh, his rule. By that logic, uh, why do you think Deadpool having his mouth sewn shut in in uh, X-Men Wolverine Origins betrays the character, but Batman doing what uh, Joe Chill did doesn't? Okay, so there's two different things here, two different levels about why these are completely different situations. Number one, and this is this is important. There are many iterations of Batman where Batman will take life and killed, including in the comics. I've brought up the comic strips on this show before showing Batman has killed in the comics in different eras. He has killed in the comics. And yes, it is true in other eras. And predominantly, there is a Batman that has an absolute rule of no killing. There are times in the comics itself. Like I, I, the famous one that I bring up all the time, Rob, is that one strip where Robin and, and Batman are talking. And it's the Jason Todd Robin. And he says, you know, you know, let's go get them. And Batman's like, we don't cross a line. And Robin says to him, but you've killed people. And Batman says, yes, in self-defense, but we don't premeditatedly go out and blah, blah, blah. Batman in the comics, in television, in movies, there have been many iterations of Batman murdering. I know people like to pretend that there aren't, but there are. I think it's Mr. Sunday movies, Rob. I, th I think it was Mr. Sunday's movies that actually in talking about the world of the big screen, He's got like a Batman kill count video of all the times in, in the movies and all the different Batman movies that Batman kill people. I mean, everything from the Tim Burton movies to Christopher Nolan's movies and on and on. We've brought up examples in the comic books before where he has done such a thing. And so that makes it a radically different thing than, say, X-Men Origins Wolverine with, with uh, Deadpool, whose defining trait – is his mouth so much so that he is known as the Merc with the mouth. There is no iteration of Deadpool where Deadpool is a quiet, somber, introspective character. There, <laughs> there is no iteration of that. That doesn't exist to the best of my knowledge. That doesn't exist. He is indeed the Merc with a mouth. And so 
you look at the history of the different iterations is makes it a completely different scenario. But also I would say this, the, like the, 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 the Merc with the mouth aspect of Deadpool is pretty much his defining factor. Lots of, lots of combo characters have swords and cut people. Lots of characters wear masks. The Merc, it's his mouth. That's what, that is his defining trait. It's like saying if in a Batman, they took away that he fights crime. That is, that is that. So I see it as a, like on several levels, it's a completely false comparison. They're, they're, they're nothing like, I don't know, Rob, how would you address that? Uh, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, the, I, I used to love Batman and the outsiders and they introduced a character named Katana who was in suicide squad, actually the movie. Right. Yes. And, and, and that was her, I mean, Katana is a sword. <laughs> you know, and the idea that that the 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 you, you it, he is the merc with the mouth. And if you look at the why do we love Deadpool so much? Sure, the the sword play and the violence is great, but you love that character because of what he says. You know, his fourth wall breaking pitter patter. I mean, it's that's what makes that movies the movies so wildly entertaining, and the comics too. He didn't start out that way, but he's evolved into that. So. All right, let's get one more in here with Rob still with us. Neurostrike writes, Hello, John and Co. Fun fact, even though Taika Waititi was the director of record for the Mando Chapter 8, Dave Filoni directed the scene of the armorer kicking the stormtroopers' asses. Looking forward to a season two directed episode. Well, uh, that's a little bit of a misnomer because here's the thing. On every movie, and I know, Rob, you've probably experienced this, in every, well, just about every movie, not necessarily every single movie, but on most movies, particularly big ones, there are second unit directors, right? Where um, they go, for instance, Andy Serkis was a second unit director for Peter Jackson on Lord of the Rings, where sometimes as the crew is shooting scenes over here because of time, they will shoot another scene at the exact same on the exact same day somewhere else. So they'll have multiple sets going and multiple things being uh, done and being filmed. And quite often, a director will like say hand off action sequences to a second unit director. Hence, actually, the John Wick guys have a have a history of that. Um, so it is not an unusual thing for a director of an episode or of a movie to have a second unit director take over a shot for an action sequence or whatever. I would also say this directing action sequences is the easier part than trying to direct real good drama and narrative. And that's the harder thing. But listen, I've been on record before and I've, I've said this before and I will say this again. Dave Filoni was the worst director on season one of Mandalorian. His episodes mm. were the worst ones, but that was a, to be expected because it's the first time he is, you got to cut him some slack because it's the first time he's ever directed anything live action. And number two, because of his attitude, you saw Rob, we talked about this in the Mandalorian documentary series. We saw this scene with Dave Filoni behind the scenes going, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I've never done this before. Yep. Thank, thank God I've got John Favreau here to mentor me, right? Directors need to have an ego. You, you, have, you can't be a director without some degree of ego. You absolutely have to. But to have that a good, healthy ego on one hand, but also be of the attitude that I don't know what I'm doing. 
and I need to learn from these people. That to me, and Rob, I still remember the day you and I talked about this. That to me was the day that I went, Dave Filoni is going to be a great live action director. That's the day that I said, Dave Filoni is going to be a great live action director. And I've said that his episodes, whenever we get to see them of season two, you watch, they're going to be exponentially better than his season one episodes were because a, now he's got some experience. That's dangerous. Now he's got some experience and two, he's had a learner's attitude while being there on set, soaking in everything. And it showed not just from Favreau, but from all the other directors that were there on the set as well, he was soaking in stuff. I am telling look, he's not going to win an Emmy for, for season two of Mandalorian, but I am telling you what he directs in season two is going to be exponentially better than what he did in season one. I don't know, Rob, your thoughts on that. Well, I look, I completely agree with you. I mean, look, directing, you cannot get out in front uh, of something uh, in front of a hundred people and make creative decisions, 10,000 different creative decisions with from costumes to acting to camera angles to lighting. You have to have an ego. You have to be you have to be self-assured enough to know that you're making those good decisions and great directors can do that. But it also you also a great director realizes that film is a very collaborative medium. And and what you need to know as a director more than anything else is how to collaborate and how more importantly to employ or deploy the creative people that you have at your disposal. And and that's – by the way, that's what they want from a director. You have all these incredibly talented people who are waiting for the director to tell them what to do so they can do their jobs. And yet at the time also seeing Dave Filoni because I watched that too – to know that he's like, I'm in this position, but I also know that I don't know. And it takes somebody with a healthy self-image and a strong ego to be able to admit that they don't know. And to understand that I'm in this position, I'm directing no matter what. And the fact is, I want my show because it's always, it's never, a director should never make it about themselves. It's always about how do you make the project better? And Dave Filoni knows that, like you said, he has the attitude of learning and, and, and being able to know what he doesn't know. And that is a gift and that is a skill. And that is something that is vital because how else do you become better at what you do than learn from people that have been doing it longer than you have? All right, great. And Rob, that's a good thing to end, uh, end off with here. Cause I know you got things you got to do. Thanks for being here today, my friend. And, uh, where can people find you and follow you online? Well, you can follow me on Instagram at Robert Meyer Burnett. Follow me on Twitter at Burnett RM, or of course on my own YouTube channel, the Burnett work, where we still have the first intergalactic imagination connoisseurs film festival running. We're accepting entries until December 1st. If you've ever wanted to make a movie, as John Campia said in his talks on walks, now is your chance. You got three more weeks. Bang something out. Submit it. All right, dude. Thanks a lot for being here. And we will talk to you again soon, my friend. Have a good one. All right, man. All right, guys. That is the one and the only, the great Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. We still got some time here and a bunch of questions to get through. So let's keep right on rolling, shall we? Next one up, we've got Murray Reich who writes, 
uh, have been pretty busy lately. So here I finally sent some tips. Well, thank you for that, Murray. I saw a few weeks ago Unhinged. That's the new Russell Crowe film. Was entertaining film, but very intense, suspenseful. Uh, Crowe performance was deranged. Driver was so believable. Not a great film due to some flaws, but overall 6.5 out of 10. And listen, it suck. I'm so kind of I'm envious, Murray, that you had a chance to go see that. I have not got to see it. And Russell Crowe's my favorite actor. Russell Crowe's my favorite actor. Um, and I didn't get a chance to go see Unhinged. So I still haven't watched it myself. I am looking forward to watch it. And you're, what you're saying is kind of in line what I've been hearing. I've been hearing it's a decent film. Pretty good. Uh, Russell Crowe's quite good in it, but not a super strong movie. Pretty good nonetheless. Not surprised to hear that. Thank you for throwing in your opinion on that, Murray. I'm looking forward to watching it myself. All right, next up. Murray also writes, I also saw Honest Thief. That's the Liam Neeson film. Uh, and the movie premise was good, but it was fine. Liam Neeson, of course, gives his typical taken action chops to work. Overall, movie was okay. It had some plot points that made no sense just, just so to get to the film going. Overall, not bad. Again, uh, Honest Thief, another movie I was interested in because I'm a Liam Neeson fan. I think he's a really good actor. Uh, but I didn't get a chance to see it because, again, for me, if I'm going to go see a movie, there are movie theaters open. But if I'm going to get to go see a movie, I have to drive minimum, you know, looking at a two hour round trip to go to see a movie. And I'm just not going to do that for unhinged or I'm not going to spend more time in the car than I am watching the movie. Now, I will make exceptions for an X-Men movie, for a Marvel movie, for a DC movie, for a big sci-fi blockbuster. I'll make some exceptions, but generally I won't be doing that drive for that. But that is another one that is in my queue that I've got to watch. So thank you again for that update, Murray. Murray also writes, despite uh, New York City theaters haven't been open, I've been able I've been taking some advantage to see some movies in theaters, of course, smart and safely. But it's sad that theaters not much new movies out. What a sad year it has been here to 20 here's to 2021 for a better year in movies. Oh, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, look, this is this is a year that I don't think any of us can wait to get behind us. Right. I don't think any of us can wait to get this year behind us. What a sucky ass year this has been. Absolutely terrible. And for the movie theater, I mean, just forever, they're going to look back. I, I think the, the, the movie industry is going to look back forever on this as like a dark, dark era, right? Um, so here's hoping we're able to get things back up and running again fairly soon. By the way, you, do you guys hear the news that, um, was it Pfizer? Is that the name of the, the drug company? said today that they think they, they've got a 90% effective uh, vaccine that they believe they're going to be able to roll out like 20 million units of it by the end of the year. And on that news, magically, movie theater stocks shot up like a rocket. Like Cinemark, AMC theaters, their stocks went like shot up dramatically. As a result of that. So does it actually mean we're going to get back to normal anytime soon? Who knows? But at least there, there looks to be some bright lights out there. We'll have to wait and see. All right. The Sock writes, I'm watching Highlander for the first time. And I love that Peter Diamond's character chooses interesting strategies like running away whenever he has the upper hand for no reason and doing 10 consecutive back handsprings when he runs away. <laughs> 
I love I, I, I love your description there, man. I love the description. All right, Mr. TJ Lynn writes, as someone who follows the U.S. election for months, I want to say that it's finally over. Congratulations. Living in a democratic country myself, I know there are many people who also follow uh, closely to this election. Again, yeah, I'm I'm I look, you know, on this show. We do not get into politics. I have my own political opinions. Everybody does. And that's fine. But here on this show, in this place, we are all fellow film fans. Doesn't matter if we politically left or if we're politically right, what our history, it doesn't matter. In this house, we are all film fans together. We are a brotherhood and sisterhood of film film fanatics and film fans and fans of storytelling and streaming or television or the movie screen, whatever. That's where we all are, are all here together. Um, but yes, it is good. It is good. That is finally about to be behind us. All right. TJ Lynn also writes, uh, I must admit, I haven't seen any new movies in the past three months, so uh, I do subscribe to Netflix. Can you recommend any recent Netflix movies, John? I haven't seen Tenet either because it's not playing in my local cinemas. We'll wait for digital in Google. Um, it's hard because, look, I honestly, while I love Netflix, especially their series stuff is great. Their docu-series, all like. They do a lot of great stuff. They are not, they do not have the best track record when it comes to movies. Like at all. They've got a couple of big winners, but for every one of those, there's like 25 that suck. Um, and, and so for me to recommend, the best recommendation I have for anything even remotely recent that's a movie is we got to go back a couple of months, but is Old Guard with Charlize Theron. I, I love that movie. I think that movie's great. You know, there was the recent uh, Devil All the Time with Tom Holland and and uh, Robert Pattinson. Frankly, to me, not a very good movie. Not a very not a very good movie. Not terrible. Not terrible. Uh, but not very good. Tom Holland is great in it. Robert Pattinson is great in it, but not very. So I would go if you're just looking for something to load up on Netflix right now. I would recommend Old Guard. That's that's where I would go personally. All right, next up. Uh, TJ Lynn also writes over under 10%. We see a movie specifically made about this particular election season in the next three to four years. I asked this because for some reason, I feel like this election is so dramatic in many senses. Um, it's it definitely been a very dramatic election. Yes. Yeah. I can see one probably being done. I also, I'll, I'll go over 10%. I wouldn't go over 50%, but so, like if you're going to make the set the over under at 10, I'll take the over. I will take the over on that. All right, guys, listen, uh, right now we've been having YouTube for some reason is having some weird streaming issues uh, this morning. So before they have any more, I, I've been double checking my internet connect. My internet connection is primo. I'm getting 40 megs upload. So I've got primo solid upload, but for whatever reason, uh, YouTube has been acting kind of finicky, uh, for the past, you know, half hour or so with the internet connection. So we're going to wrap up the show a little bit early, but I'm going to tell you what, for everybody else who had your, your questions outstanding from man of steel rules, Dwayne Jackson and onward, I was going to do a, uh, companion video this weekend. My weekend got away from me and I didn't get to do a companion video. I'll do a companion video today. So I will make sure that all the outstanding questions that we still have left over will get answered today. So I'll make a companion video. Keep your eyes open for that to come up a little bit later tonight. And also, I'm going to let you guys know, uh, we finally, finally, 
have a trailer for my movie, uh, my documentary, Movie Trailers, A Love Story. Uh, we finally have a trailer, an actual trailer for it. And I'm going to be debuting that trailer uh, on my channel probably in the next day or two. Probably in the next day or two, we will finally have a trailer for my movie about trailers. How meta is that? A trailer for my movie about trailers. We finally got one. We're going to put that out uh, in the next day or two. Uh, so keep your eyes open for that. All right, guys. That'll do it for today's installment of the John Campia Show. Thank you so much for being here and making this show a part of your day. Thanks to Robert Meyer Burnett. Thanks to all of you for being here. And a special thank you to all you guys who did send in those live questions. Number one, because you gave us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you supported this channel while you did it. And all of us here, thank you guys very much for that. Don't forget the John Campia Show returns again tomorrow. We hope you will come and join us for that. That will do it for me for now, guys. Thanks a lot for being here. My name is John Campia. And until next time, my friends, bye-bye.